My name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Emmaus members, it is a joy to, to be with you, to, uh, to worship with you, to confess with you, to open the, the word with you. If you're a visitor here, a special welcome to you, whether you're a visitor for the very first time or for the 10th time, it is our joy to, to have you here with us. Uh, we would love to be able to, to welcome you more fully. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. There, uh, you can I would love to, to meet you after the service. Uh, Pastor Tyler, who's going to do the benediction at the end, would also love to greet you. Um, you can uh, fill out a Connect card. The, uh, there's going to be a QR code up on this side of the screen behind me. Um, that just allows us to, for you to give some information to us, just your name, a way to, to reach out to you. Um, if you, there's a specific inquiry you, you have, you can put that there. Um, but that, if, you're a, if you haven't filled that out, we would love to, to be able to connect with you, hear your story, hear how you came to Emmaus. Um, and especially one thing I want to emphasize today is that if you're a visitor and you're interested in looking at what does it mean to take next steps at Emmaus, we have something called Discover Emmaus next Sunday here at the theater at 8.30 a.m. Before, uh, before worship, okay? And I think that we have a QR code for that, but if we don't, and you haven't signed up for that, please go to the hospitality table immediately after. We would love to get you signed up. We would get you, we'll get you the link. I believe there's a sign-up sheet there if you just want to sign up there directly. That way we know that you're coming. There you will learn more about who we are as Emmaus. That begins the road toward, toward membership. Now, if you're like, ah, I'm not quite sure about that, there's no obligation, come here and you decide if you want to continue to move forward with that. But we would love to see you if you're a visitor at Discover Emmaus next Sunday. Before we read uh, God's word this morning, also one more announcement. Members especially, but anyone at Emmaus, next week we are beginning a three-part uh, sermon series um, we have at Emmaus always been about seeing God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel, and that will never change. But one thing that the pastors have been working on for a little over a year is how to fully describe what it means to see God glorified and churches multiplied in and through the life of Emmaus. And so we'll have a three-part sermon series looking at creed, community, and commission beginning next week. So please... Uh, make plans to be here for sure for the next three weeks. If you can't, those will be recorded. Um, but those, th that sermon series was going to be really helpful and unifying uh, for us as a church, a unified vision of who, who are we? That's really the question that we're seeking to, ans to answer in there. As we open up God's word, would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and we want to see Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, and so you can turn there. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When I was nine years old, my, my sister was born. Um, I already had a brother at the time. I was the oldest in my family. I had a brother who is a year and a half younger than me. And, but this was the first time that we actually had a baby in the house. You know the feeling if it's the first time. If you're a parent and you have your first child, or if you are a sibling and you have suddenly are aware that you have a small human being in your house, uh, life changes a little bit, okay? And I remember not long after my parents had brought my sister home and my parents asked me 
asked me a really scary question. Would you like to hold the baby? And of course, I didn't know that I could say no, so I said yes, and my parents had done a very good job. They prepared me ahead of time, okay? They gave me some rules. So support the head, right? You know all these rules. Support the head. Don't poke at its face. I had to be told that as a nine-year-old. And whatever you do, no matter the sounds that happen, don't drop it, okay? And so I sat down on the couch, and I was ready for this bundle, and my parents are handing the bundle to me, and all of the rules are going through my head, and I, suddenly I'm holding this baby, and I'm completely paralyzed because what am I supposed to do with this thing? What do I do with this thing? There's something here in my arms that is so precious. There's something, in, but, but my nine-year-old mind could not even understand fully what was happening. This is a new life. This is my sister. Something so precious and yet so confusing and, and, and intimidating at the same time. Our passage this morning, when we first read it, it could feel like this. It could feel like this both to us because it definitely felt this way for those who experienced it, as we'll see. This morning, as Pastor Tyler and as Mason said, we'll be looking at the transfiguration of Jesus. I couldn't find a record that we've ever preached a sermon on the transfiguration. I could be wrong. This may be the first. But perhaps you grew up in a, in a church tradition um, and you're familiar with, the transfig with Transfiguration Sunday. That is the celebration of the Feast of the Transfiguration. Perhaps though your church tradition or you didn't grow up as a believer and you don't know or you, you've maybe heard of the Transfiguration, but, but what it is can seem a little bit intimidating or uncertain. The Transfiguration Sunday Okay, just like Palm Sunday, just like Resurrection Sunday, just like Ascension Sunday that we've already observed this year are, are focused on, our observation is focused on these special revelations, these special displays of the glory of God, particularly through the display of the glory of the Son. And so that's what I'm about to, 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 to plunk into your lap today, okay? Something that... Uh, something that could be intimidating, something that will definitely feel, we'll, we'll read the passage and you'll get this, it's a weighty thing. But at the same time, it can feel like an odd event. And so this morning, we, what my goal is to move us from what do I do with this to I can't live without this. And so our main point this morning, the main thing that we're going to see is that the transfiguration of Jesus is a glory for us to behold, a union for us to enjoy, and a future reality that we long to see. A glory we long, or a glory for us to behold, a union for us to enjoy, and a reality we long to see. And, and so let's read here in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And they were coming down, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Certainly glorious. Certainly glorious, but perhaps confusing at first. What do we do with this? This passage begins with a reference to six days earlier. Okay, six days since the end of chapter 16. Six days since Jesus told his disciples that he would be captured delivered over to his enemies, executed, and after three days, rise again. He delivered this to them. And after that prediction, Jesus takes, or or Peter takes Jesus to task. He takes him to task and says, no, no, this is never going to happen. You're not going to die. And Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan, rebuking Peter for his lack of understanding of the plans of God. Hopefully there, we can identify with Peter a little bit. Of all of the possible messiahs or possible candidates, Jesus of Nazareth looked like a pretty safe bet. Miracles, he captivates the crowds, he confounds the religious leaders, he speaks in riddles, and he's even good with kids. So dying, we're just getting started. Why are we talking about dying? So what precedes our passage here in chapter 17 is this declaration of Jesus' death in chapter 16, a a message that's met with confusion, discouragement, unmet expectations, and mystery about the purposes of God. And if we were to fast forward to chapter 18, verse 22, we would see basically an identical situation. Jesus emphasizes, he, he repeats himself and says that he will be captured Put on trial, he will be killed, and he will rise again. And their reaction that time is grief. Grief. There's devastation that their teacher would say these things. There's devastation that something that that looks like it's pointing to something great is seemingly going to end in death and loss. And so the account of Jesus' transfiguration here is, is bookended. There's bookends of sorts here with Bookends of confusion and grief, of disappointment and doubt. And there's something paradoxical about this account then, because though it takes place up on a mountain, for the disciples in their minds, seeing only these things, it it seems to take place in the valley of the shadow of death. And so though it may be this, this account may be unfamiliar to us, it's actually vital to our Christian life, and more than that, to our very joy, because the transfiguration sits within the Gospels as like the pinnacle, 
the pinnacle moment, the pinnacle revelation of, of, of the glory of the Son and the purpose for which he has been set, sent. No doubt, the, the, the cross is the culmination of our salvation, but, but at the ebb and flow of, of, of the gospel accounts, this mountaintop glory is a pinnacle of sorts. It gives a picture of the, all of the events from Genesis until, until this time. It gives a, it's a summary, a culmination of everything that's happened from Genesis and will happen until the beginning of the book of Acts. So there's this paradox, overwhelming waves of glory in the midst of confusion. The eternal surrounded by apparent finality, piercing light in the midst of sad darkness. And so Peter, or so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to this high mountain. It was Jesus' custom to get away, after all, to retreat into times of prayer and communion with the Father. In the chapters before chapter 17, Jesus has endured criticism. He's endured opposition. He's endured the, the death of his cousin. He's fed, um, the, he's fed multitudes and then a multitude again. He's foretold his death only for his disciples to doubt him. It makes sense, at least in the disciples' minds, it makes sense that he would want to get away. Oh, this must be like just, just like every other time. These men have certain ex- expectations. Perhaps they're going to, perhaps he'll, te- he'll teach them. Perhaps they'll, he'll pray with them. Perhaps they'll sit in silence or he'll go and pray by himself. And so they think if Jesus, it must be a spiritual retreat. Spiritual retreat. He's told us to go with him, so let's go with him. But after only a little time, it becomes very apparent that on this mountain that this is no normal spiritual retreat. Uh, Luke rats these guys out, by the way, in his account, and he, he tells us what they're doing. They're sleeping, okay? If you know your, your, your gospel accounts, you know that that kind of is a theme for the disciples, typically sleeping when they should be awake. They're, they've dozed off. They've dozed off, but then suddenly... Glory appears. And this gives us our very first point, that the transfiguration is primarily a glory for us to behold. A glory for us to behold. The, tra- the disciples are dozing when suddenly Jesus is transfigured. He is still the Jesus that they know, but he is also the Jesus they could have never imagined. And so, bleary-eyed, these three disciples behold the unvarnished glory of the eternal Son and the majesty of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, arrayed in splendid light, emanating the eternal light of the Godhead. If you've been here at Emmaus for some time, perhaps you remember us using this phrase. It's called the beatific vision, and I'm going to explain what that means. But what that phrase is trying to do is capture in word and concept the utmost reality that a soul can experience. That is seeing God. If you remember here, I told you I'd tell you what that word meant. If you remember here, Matthew 5, Matthew 5 is called the Beatitudes, very much related to the word beatific, the Beatitudes. How do the, how do the Beatitudes go? You, you, you know them, don't you? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. In fact, the beatific vision actually appears in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
So the word beatific, don't, don't let it scare you. How many syllables are in it? I, I, I can't count them either. Beatific. The word beatific then refers to the eternal blessedness of the Godhead being looked upon and the state of blessing for us who do the beholding. Let me say that again. Beatific refers to the eternal blessedness of the Godhead being beheld and the blessing, the state of blessing for us who do the beholding. And this seeing, the vision, okay? This seeing, of course, is more than just seeing something in a distance with a telescope, right? Or looking up very close molecularly at something through a microscope. It, and it's definitely more, this seeing, this vision that we're talking about is more than just a photograph or a painting. No, we use vision because vision is the human sense most, most connected to experiential participation. We use words here at Emmaus when we talk about, like, what are we supposed to be doing in relation to Christ? We, we use words like feasting. We use words like enjoying. But vision comes even closer because vision is deep attachment. And not, not just one time, but a continual attachment, a continual connection with God. We as Christians, as the church, are described in multiple areas of Scripture, but especially in Revelation, as the bride, as the bride and Christ, our bridegroom. Adam and Eve in the garden, connected, seeing each other fully, yet without shame. So vision, then, is God-centered. That's why we use the word vision. We use the word vision because it's God-centered in a way that no other senses are. The beatific vision and its perpetual gaze on God in Christ centers like nothing else on enjoying him. That is the purpose. Our greatest, our, our, the beatific vision, the blessed vision, the, the vision that is ultimately most consequential and blessing to us is a vision that is for our joy, for our enjoyment. This is what we mean when we say the beatific vision. It's nothing more or less than beholding with our mind, with our heart, with our soul, with our body, the wondrous perfections, beauties of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The disciples here behold the transfigured Christ and next to Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Why these men? Okay, why these men out of all the, the men, the heroes of old? Why not Adam or Noah or Abraham, Isaac or Jacob? Why not King David? That seems fitting. Actually, to a Jew at the time and to the disciples, this would have been Actually, fairly predictable. They would have expected these two men. Other than the fact it was miraculous, these are the men they would have expected. Our Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, were divided by the Jews into two parts, the law and the prophets. Moses is the one through whom God has delivered his law to his people. And so the presence of Moses there makes sense. Moses, the representative of the law. In Elijah too, Elijah the prophet who did not die, but was taken up by God in a chariot of fire is set forth, set forth as the prime exemplar of the prophets. 
Their presence here confirms Jesus' words to the teachers in John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus would say later in Luke 24, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the presence of these men and Jesus' greater glory in their midst points to the truth that Jesus' fulfillment of the law and prophets places Jesus as preeminent in this gathering. These are not three equal men, right? These are not three equal men. These are not three equal equal people to be interacting with. These men defer to Jesus, obviously, and particularly because of the tremendous display of the glory of Jesus. But Moses here is also particularly interesting because in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of the law, and his face shone brightly, for he had been in the presence of God, and the people were afraid, and they asked him to put a veil on, but his face shone because he had been in the presence of God. Any glow that remained on Moses here, though, was diminished, for the radiance of Jesus' glory shone brighter. Moses' face glowed because he had beheld just a piece of the glory of God. His face glowed as a reflection, but Jesus was light in himself. And so then, this helps us to see then how how do we behold Jesus? Well, one of those ways, one of those ways is through the scriptures, the law and the prophets, the gospel and the epistles. Moses and Elijah go on to speak with Jesus Luke fills us in over in his account on what they discussed. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What departure then? Earlier, I said that the transfiguration encompasses all of of what has gone before that. And we see that in Moses and Elijah, the fulfillment. It's a culmination of the the transfiguration is a a culmination of, and an improvement upon the hidden glory in the Old Testament. The prophecies and the hidden glory are now the fulfillment and revealed. But Jesus here is, is focused, and, and even Moses and Elijah here are not talking about the past. They're not saying, hey, wasn't it crazy when? No, they're focused on the future. They're focused on the future. In the, that word in Luke, departure, in Greek, it literally means exodus. That's right, the second, second book of the Old Testament, Exodus, a glorious exit. Jesus' glorious exit. Remember, this event is sandwiched, isn't it? It's sandwiched in between two statements from Jesus, that he will die and he will rise. It was met by his disciples, remember, with disappointment, to say the least, with discouragement. But here... Moses and Elijah seem to be speaking to Jesus with anticipation, looking forward to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's important for us to remember, brothers and sisters, that Jesus meant to go to the cross. He meant to go to the cross. He was not coerced. He wasn't tricked or caught unaware. 
though betrayed by a friend, Jesus knew his time. He knew his purpose, and he was obedient to the Father all the way up until the point of death. The law and the prophets all point to this truth that a greater, better Adam is necessary, that a greater Noah would rescue his family, that a greater prophet than Moses would write the law on the hearts of his people, that a greater priest than Aaron would enter into the holiest place based on his own blood, and that a greater David would one day ascend the throne. The promise of God provided for these to be fulfilled and his power made sure of it. And so the disciples observe all of this and Peter, always the man of action, wanting to do his very best, though half asleep and completely terrified, said, let's put up tents. This is great. You guys hang out. I'll set up camp. Classic Peter. Classic Peter. The problem is, of course, that Peter misses the point. He's offering three tents, that is, three places of honor, when only Jesus is worthy of that honor. It was also Peter's partial intent that this glorious display just stay in one place. Let's keep the glory here. Let's keep the party going. Hopefully Jesus doesn't leave and resume his journey toward his death. And Peter sees, this is important, Peter has seen, but he has not fully beheld. He has not beheld because he does not understand. Perhaps you find yourself in the place of Peter today. Perhaps you have heard of Jesus. After all, he's the one that we have sung about and the one that we have confessed today. Perhaps you have heard of Jesus, but you don't know him. You have not fully beheld him. He is not yet precious to you as Lord and Savior. And look, as we read this, as you hear this, look at Jesus. And if the Spirit would, behold Jesus. You don't need to climb a mountain here, but instead you can reach out in desperation and faith. Church, the glory that we behold in the transfiguration cannot be domesticated as with a tent. Rather than act, rather than get up out of our seats, rather than go and, oh, what do I need to do? I need to go do something in response to this, the, 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 the the command here, and it's not a command, it's an invitation. The invitation at the transfiguration is to behold, to marvel. The transfiguration compels us to stop and look. To stop and more than look, to marvel. To marvel. Marvel at the glory of the incarnate Son, fully God and fully man. Marvel at the Word became flesh. Marvel at the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Marvel and behold him. Point number two. The transfiguration is a union for us to enjoy. Transfig the transfiguration is a union for us to enjoy. And we enjoy this union because, and this is important, we've just said that it's something that we should behold but this is, this is a union that we experience. It's a union that we participate in. We enjoy this union because having been united to Christ, we have been swept into communion with the Trinity. While Peter's still speaking, right? 
he says, let's, let's put up some tents. A bright cloud overshadowed them, the scriptures say, and a, wor- and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The transfigured son now, Jesus who has been transfigured, his, his glory not added to him, but revealed the glory he already possessed, fully revealed, is now accompanied here by the seen and heard presence of the Spirit and the Father. The Spirit enveloping the Father and the Son, the same cloud of glory that rushed into Solomon's temple. And then the declaring voice of the Father, proclaiming his eternal blessing, favor, and delight in the Son. So Genesis 1, the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and immediately following, we, have a, we, we see a demonstration, an explicit demonstration of the presence and power of the Trinity. In Jesus' baptism, we have Jesus present, the Spirit descending like a dove in the voice of the Father, each member of the Trinity mentioned explicitly. And here again, for the third time, we have, we have Jesus now transfigured with the presence of the Spirit in the cloud and the voice of the Father. So we should pay attention here. This declaration of the Father affirms the claims that Jesus has made about himself so far in his ministry. Jesus has declared himself equal with the Father. That was a problem with with the local religious authorities. He's claimed himself equal with the Father, but the Father doesn't correct, offers no correction. Jesus declared himself the son of the father, and the father agrees. Jesus said that his food is to do the will, the pleasure of his father, and the father affirms that he is well pleased in the son. This declaration here is not meant to boost Jesus' confidence. He is the eternal son, after all, and fully believes always and never doubts the father's perfect love for him. And so, yes, the Father proclaims these things for the benefit of the disciples, but it also gives us access, a viewpoint, a vantage point into the inner workings of the Trinity, a small peek into the eternal love that binds the Trinity together in eternal communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This mutual love characterizing these three persons. But this is not the only reason for the Father's phrasing, okay? This is not the only reason. In Genesis 22, God came to Abraham and said to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Take the son, go up on the mountain. Jesus and Isaac here, both only Sons of promise. Jesus and Isaac here marked by a father's love. And from that story, we know what happens, don't we? We know what happens. Abraham takes his son. He takes him. And and soon the question comes from Isaac, of course. Seemingly tragic question. Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And the reply from the father, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. And when they reach the top, Isaac is bound, and Abraham, about to strike 
his son. And then suddenly a voice, stop, stop. In effect, this is not the sacrifice that pleases me. And a lamb is provided in Isaac's place. And now here on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice speaks. The disciples who still feel the sting of Jesus' prediction of his own death, they long to hear those words. They long to hear, stop, there's another way. Yet the, voice, the, yet the voice's words come down in the affirmative. Ah, this is the one that pleases me. This is the sacrifice that satisfies. As John the Baptist also said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Church, the Father did not withhold from you his Son, his only Son, whom he loved. The Lamb that was slain, or the Lamb that would rise, must first be slain. Christian, having been redeemed from our sin by the blood of the slain and risen Lamb, as recipients of grace, you have been united to him forever. You have been united to Christ forever. If we are said to be united as one flesh in our earthly marriages, a union that can be disrupted and broken by death, how much more are we united to the eternal, powerful Christ who will never perish? Romans 8, 38 and 39 say, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christian, nothing can separate us from, nothing can separate us from our union with Christ, not even death, not even death, because Christ is a mocker and a humiliator of death. As Spurgeon says, there is no joy like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. This union then is not simply a union of security, not simply that it cannot be broken, not simply that Christ has held us fast, but also a union of heavenly joy and delight. Now hear this. So since by faith we are united to the Son, been united to the Son, and the Son enjoys perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit, so then we too have communion with the Trinity. Let me say that one more time. Because I had to like check my words to make sure I was even saying it right. Is we have been united to Christ by faith in his blood. Christ is eternally bound in communion. The, the Holy Trinity bound to the Father and the Spirit. So we also enjoy that same communion. We are not saved and then left over here. But our salvation is not just that we've been brought close to the family of God, which is certainly true, but we have been brought close and united to God himself. For our union with Christ does not break his union with the Father and the Spirit, but instead thrusts us in. Consider this. As you sit right now, you are as one who communes the Godhead. By our union with Christ, the favor of the Father declaring his great pleasure in the Son that we see in the transfiguration, that same pleasure, that same delight is now spoken over you. 
Christian, you yourself are being progressively transfigured, a new creation. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, as we have already seen today, that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So how do we enjoy this communion? You might say, well, you've said that I I can do that as I sit in my seat, but how do I do that? What do I need to do? The magic formula. We do it through the power of the Spirit. Pastor Patrick spoke of this in his sermon on the ascension. The believer experiences communion with the Trinity through our spiritual ascent. That is our transfiguration, which begins with the removal of the desires of the flesh. These are listed out in scripture as sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, and so on. Our spiritual ascent begins and continues on this earth with the removal of deeds of darkness. And then, and then, the removal of darkness and then light illumination, which comes as we behold Jesus and walk increasingly in the light of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, Emmaus, long for the light and labor in the Spirit. Reject the deeds of darkness, for you will experience a fading of this world and growing communion with the God of light. And this communion with growing light and fading darkness will bring you into the joy of the Lord. As the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, what, is, what enters in is not the absence of things, but the fullness, the fullness of who God is, the fullness of joy. So by the Spirit, behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. By the Spirit, which indwells you now, look upon him and be satisfied. Look upon him and enjoy him. For if you look upon him, you will certainly find joy. My final point is this. The transfiguration gives us a future reality that we long to see, future reality that we long to see. So no sooner here in our, in chapter 17, no sooner has the father completed his affirmation of the son, the disciples have fallen on their face, but now all was, or all is as it was before. The cloud, the voice, Moses, Elijah, all gone. Jesus stands before them now as he had stood before them previously. The glory, though, is not gone. The glory is hidden. It's not gone, but it is hidden. This is part of the mystery of the transfiguration here in Matthew and the mystery of the transfiguration that we look forward to. It is glory revealed and glory concealed. The full display and demonstration of the eternal glory of the Son joined by the visible presence 
the visible presence and the audible presence of the Spirit and the Father, and then hidden again. And Jesus takes it one step further and says, don't say anything to anybody. Don't tell anyone. Glory revealed and glory concealed. And the disciples ask, they go on to ask what to us might seem a strange question. You would expect a question like, what was that? What even is that? But they ask a strange, seemingly strange question. They ask about Elijah. What about Elijah? Isn't he supposed to come first? It seems like their thought is, well, it makes sense that everybody else disappeared. What about Elijah? Seems strange. But what they're doing is they're referencing Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, the very end of the chapter, the last words delivered to the people of God before the centuries of silence, before Jesus came. Malachi 4 says that Elijah will come. First, Elijah must come before the awesome day of the Lord. So their question, the disciples' question here, is not so much... uh, what's going to happen, not so much why, and not so much how, but when. When. Though they hadn't fully beheld, and they did not completely understand, they had connected it to the, to the coming day of the Lord. When is the day of the Lord, they ask. And Jesus, in response speaks, refers to, they understand he's referring to John the Baptist, the one who came before him. John's message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by pointing to John, whose ministry has just come to a close, the meaning is clear. The time is at hand. And they continue down the mountain, and the gospel accounts go on to describe this anticipation a growing anticipation, a a looming presence of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Because the time has come. Emmaus, the time is now. Jesus, by his coming, Jesus, by his death, Jesus, by his resurrection, and certainly by his ascension, has ushered in the kingdom of heaven. And we now live in the age of the church. The Old Testament, glory concealed. The New Testament, glory revealed. And today, glory known clearly, yet veiled. The time is now, and still not yet. The time is now, and still not yet. We live now in these latter days, in the last days, the days of the reign of our king, and yet we await with anticipation the return of the king, the return of the king to establish his rule on earth more fully and completely for all of eternity, his reign on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, his reign will make all things right. And we look forward to that. All things will be made right. And justice will will roll down like a mighty river But more than that, Christian, long for the day when the transfigured glory is hidden no longer and never again. 
the Lord veiled no longer, but shining brilliant in his glory and perfections without a hint of shadow. For in that day, brothers and sisters, we will be made like him. We will be made like him. Our union with him will remain, but our faith will be turned to sight, beholding the brilliant, blessed vision of the blessed one in all of his splendor. Your joy, brother, your joy, sister, will be complete. It will be complete and never diminished. It will be complete and never lacking. It will be complete and overflowing. Your own transfiguration will be consummated as our union with the Godhead is made complete, ever abounding in joy and satisfaction forever. I said at the beginning, what am I supposed to do with it? We have a precious thing in the transfiguration here. What are we to do with it? Three things. Three things. First of all, behold. Behold. Look upon this glory. A glorious a glorious presentation does not demand human action. Like, like the voice that boomed here in the cloud and said, listen to him. There is a posture of reception. Put away the deeds of the flesh. Put away the deeds of the flesh. By the Spirit's power, look at Christ. Look beyond, there is... Friend, there is beyond this world a reality that is more real than this world. There is a reality more real. There is a reality more glorious. The food that you will taste at lunch is real. The, the, the satisfaction that it gives is real. But there is a real satisfaction that is more real than the grumbling of our stomachs. There is a joy that is better than two Super Bowls in five years. There is a joy, a lasting joy. There is a, there is a satisfaction and a conclusion to all of the longings of this world. So look above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. Raise your eyes this week. Behold, enjoy, and wait with eager expectation for the appearing of your transfigured Savior and the sure hope that you will be made like him in his glory. The Lord's Supper is given to us in the midst. Here we are, mid-transfiguration, being slowly transformed into, from one degree of glory to another. And the Lord's Supper is given to us as a means of grace to empower our life in the spirit now and to give us a foretaste of the supper that we, will, that we will enjoy in the kingdom of the lamb. As we partake of this meal, we partake of Christ. We declare our confidence in his glorious return and our confidence that we will see his transfigured, perfect beauty forever. So this is a Christian meal in a moment, everyone will come up and, and come this way. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, we just ask that you sit in your seat and just remain there. We respect.
We respect that and we respect and love your honesty there. Instead of coming and partaking, instead sit and consider this Jesus. This Jesus who is at once fully God and fully man. This Jesus who at once is eternal and yet died. And died and then gloriously rose again for your salvation. Consider Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to pray, and then you can come down this way. Come up here, grab the elements, return up here. We'll have a song and a benediction. Pray with me. Spirit, Spirit, show, show us Jesus. Show us Jesus in ever-increasing degrees of glory and splendor until we gaze upon him fully with perfect vision. Spirit, remove our deeds of darkness also that we may enjoy greater communion with the blessed Trinity. Enliven our hearts by your power. Enliven our hearts more richly that we may enjoy Christ more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.